Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Gregor Martinez. Gregor, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, David. All right. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I've been software engineer for nearly 20 years now. Um, I've always worked self-employed. I always had my own businesses. I always worked as a contractor. So I you know, cannot give a lot of experiences in terms of finding a job as an employee. But I've been also very much involved in, in open source now for nearly a decade. Um, I've coached a lot of early career developers, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And um, right now, I am working for GitHub as a contractor, and I do maintain all the JavaScript tooling for GitHub platform APIs. That is awesome. So how, how did you get into that? That sounds like a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, so I think it all started out around 2011 when we started Hoodie, H-O-O-D.ie. Mm. Um, it became like the first open source project of a significant size that I was involved in. And I learned a lot about creating and maintaining a very welcoming open source community. And I learned what it entails to do that, what it entails to lower the barrier for new contributors, what it means to create a project which is welcoming not only to code contributors, but to contributors of all time. And it stuck with me. And today, I kind of consider myself a community engineer that um, focuses on creating communities like that and maintaining communities like that, both in terms of communication, but also in, in creating interesting tooling to facilitate these kind of communities. And from Hoodie, it went on to a few other projects. And eventually, my friend Brandon Keepers, was one of the early employees at GitHub, reached out to us and said, like, hey, we need help. We want to build out this OctoKit program and build out these SDKs in all kinds of languages. And we want to start out with JavaScript. They do Ruby themselves, and they wanted an outside contractor for JavaScript. So this is how I got into this gig in 2000, I think, end of 2017. And ever since, you know, I've not only built out the JavaScript libraries for GitHub's REST API and GraphQL API and all their authentication strategies and OAuth apps and GitHub apps and Actions and whatever they have, but I've also invested a lot into creating shared resources which are helpful for all the SDK developers. Like the open API specification and just JSON schemas for webhooks and so on, that all the SDK developers uh, and maintainers can benefit from. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, that is so cool. So it sounds like the the work that you've been doing, you know, that that you've you've done for GitHub has been used by. It sounds like a lot of developers over the years. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think uh, I don't know the exact numbers. I think GitHub gets something around 1.5 billion requests mm, wow. per day on their API. And and I think 2 to 3% uh, OctoKit JavaScript. But I will double check that before <laughs> you put it in the show notes. I don't want to lie. Um, but at a significant amount um, of developers are using and pending on code I've written. And if you use JavaScript, Node.js, Dino, anything in the, in the web platform, 
sphere and you integrate with github it's mm -hmm. pretty sure i'm pretty sure you use my code and if you don't then i would love to know why <laughs> you help you uh to know uh you know to use to use my stuff because i think it will take out a lot of pain that you mm -hmm. will <laughs> yeah. experience if you don't yeah i bet so i think i'm like i'm really interested to know like because for me I think to be a, a, a what it means to be successful, you know, with what we do, it's it's to provide it's to provide a lot of value. And and maybe that's a little bit of a nebulous term, but but it, it I roughly translate it to, you know, making somebody's life a lot better or easier, kind of like what you just said, or, you know, making a lot of people's you know lives easier, ideally a lot a lot easier, a lot better, um, but even just a lot of people, you know, just a little bit. And so it sounds like, you know, under my definition, you are incredibly successful. And uh, because of that, I just want to know, like, what what goes through your mind when you're trying to figure out how to build something that's going to be useful for a developer or something that, that yeah, like, how do you how do you think about making developers live lives easier building building tools for them that they're going to like yeah there are several perspectives on that when it comes um to octocad which is the name for the uh, you know sdks that i'm working on for for github in terms for the users what i try to do is to stay both close to the you know official documentations that GitHub has for its GraphQL and REST APIs, but also very close to the conventions that developers are used to in the JavaScript ecosystem. So ideally, um, the benefit you want to have by using an, like an NPM module for your like whatever React app project or Node.js project is it should feel natural. You, you want to have like asynchronous methods that can read um, mm -hmm. the response of a REST API, or you want to have like a nice API to, to send out a GraphQL query with variables and so on. Ideally, you have great TypeScript support, so mm -hmm. you, you know, have the advantage of fantastic intelligence like in code type aheads, basically, no matter whether you use TypeScript or JavaScript, it's usually built in into today's editors out of the box. So this is the developer experience part of it that I try to focus. Beyond that, SDKs have an advantage to the server APIs that GitHub has because it's running in your code. It's running on the client. So it can keep state, like a REST API is stateless. But an SDK can do things like throttle requests, for example, because it understands the rules, like how many requests can I send per hour or you know, for specific requests that trigger notifications, the rules are different, and we can build all this into the SDKs and can throttle your requests accordingly so you don't run into rate limits or abuse limits. Mm -hmm. Or we can retry requests. Like sometimes you get 500 responses from the server. It's only like an intermitting problem, and we can just wait a second and retry, and it's totally transparent to you. Um, or like there are things where, for example, for authentication, you get an expiring token and we have to renew it every hour. I mean, your script runs long, then we can just do it transparently for you in the background and you don't need to worry about it. So there's a lot of complexity we can kind of implement 
for you and you don't need to worry about it. You just use JavaScript methods that look very similar to all the other code that you use every day. Yeah, it's fun. It's like you talking about that really sort of makes me think of like empathy or at least being able to have this understanding of the user, put yourself in their shoes, get their perspective. Um, and I think that's so important. Uh, and and it's funny because like you you just mentioned something that that the we're talking about making something that follows the conventions of the language or being idiomatic. I remember getting so annoyed with AWS's SDK. This was a while ago. I haven't used them in a, in a while, but um, I forget if it was like for S three or maybe it was SQS for like the like the queuing. It was for something, and I was so annoyed that their node uh sdk didn't support streams which is like a very you know idiomatic node convention you know node just uses streams all over the place and it's it's a very you know efficient abstraction it's it's just like a good way to do things and i just i was so annoyed because it it just was clear that nobody who was in the node ecosystem or used node uh, a lot day to day was involved in making this SDK for Node. Uh, I even remember having a conversation with like one of their uh, like support reps or something for some other issue that we had, and they just you know made some comment about like, well, you know, if you're you know just using our SDK, then X Y Z, and I was like, I'm not using your SDK, and they they were like so confused, like the idea that I would want to use you know, a third party one that that actually involved, you know, streams or something like that. I think it was written by uh, Matthias Maffintosh. Anyways, it was just it was just like so alien to them. They I just don't think they, you know, some and maybe they've gotten a lot better. But at the time, they just didn't didn't really care about that empathy or or following the conventions of the the users that they were serving, at least from from my perspective. So I think it's super cool that that you do. And it sounds like that empathy and that understanding of users was really important to you when you were doing Hoodie and your other open source projects. It sounds like that was a real focus to you. What what made you want to concentrate so hard on that? I mean, for one, all of these projects are open source. OctoKit is special because I'm actually getting paid for it. But as an open source project, you have to keep maintenance overhead low. And every moment you save by quickly, you know, putting something out there, an API for a library, for example, that is not really well researched and thought through will create a lot of inquiries after. And for an open source project that you do in your free time in the afternoon, that becomes mm -hmm. a problem because you end up spending more and more time on answering people's questions, which is maybe not why you started to maintain this project or create this project in the first place, right? So it is worth to really focus on creating a very nice developer experience because it will greatly reduce the maintenance overhead later in terms of supporting the community. And you know, maybe as a recommendation for like early career developers, um, you know, we are talking about these idioms and, and conventions. I think a great way to kind of get a feeling for these is look at the source code of 
libraries and apps that you enjoy a lot. You know, like if you like Mathintosh, <laughs> Matthew has definitely created some fantastic code. And when you use some of their libraries, um, check out their source code and you will learn a lot. Like back in the days, that was jQuery for me. Mm -hmm. you know, mid 2000s, jQuery came out and I read the entire source code of jQuery. And this is how I learned so much about how people implement certain APIs because I wanted mm -hmm. to know. And mm -hmm. I also, you know, I, I looked at prototype and like some other libraries at the times um, to not only see what are kind of the APIs that they are using, but also how do they implement them? And then eventually also like how do they facilitate the community work around it? Like how do they, you know, encourage contributions and, and how do they walk people through and, and how do they make this whole process as efficient as possible. Like I like to say, when you run an open source project, you are doomed to be fun. <laughs> like, you know, if your project is not fun, people will not contribute and even more people right. will not stick around because why should they? There is so much out there. And fun, you know, it, it might sound, sound funny, but fun also means just to be very efficient and very efficient means to implement the best practices out there. And from my own experiences, at least established open source projects have much better best practices implementations than any closed source software. Because for closed source, people are being paid. They have no choice. <laughs> they have to stick around, right? So they have to do the work. And the decision makers don't necessarily want to invest in like the chore work of automating stuff and improving the CI, they want new features because their managers mm -hmm. force them to, right? But when you're an open source project, everything I can automate, I do automate because I don't want to spend my time with it. But I also want the experience for contributors to be as good um, as possible to increase the likelihood that people will contribute and that people will enjoy the process and then stick around for another contribution and maybe even onboard them as maintainers. Yeah, I really like that. There's, I think there's a big part of that too that that translates. You know, you mentioned closed source, right? So more, you know, proprietary or at least more, I don't know, business, company, corporate setting. But something that, that you're touching on, though, is that the those same skills that that you you feel like you need to develop that that you need to make better for an open source project. If you were to take those same best practices and that the same making it fun, making it frictionless, uh, uh, you know, automation for maintenance, things like that, and you were to bring it to you know uh, a project that that is closed source. Uh, within a company, that will get you noticed. I think uh, that that will show a lot of leadership skills. I think that is probably one of the best ways to set yourself apart from from your peers within a company. Um, I mean, I know I've seen that happen with some of my stuff. You know, I would I would similarly be uh, encouraged and inspired by some of the open source projects that I saw, and I would go the extra mile internally. And it, it was it was amazing to see other departments and my managers, uh, you know, a long time ago, really, really notice and, uh, and reward me for it. 
do you see the same thing? Like, do you see uh, a lot of value in um, developers or junior developers learning from from the open source type stuff and then applying it uh, to their jobs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, a junior developer or an early career developer um, doesn't mean that, you know, you're kind of behind the curve in all aspects. Like there are people who've been around years or maybe decades longer than an early developer, like a developer early in their career. But for one, most of the stuff that I learned in the past 20 years is irrelevant today. Mm-hmm. And second, the processes, you know, that is something that is very useful for me that sticks with me. But there is so much new stuff coming out every day and I cannot keep up with it. <laughs> but if someone, you know, joins joins like my team or I join another team and I see like an inefficiency and I happen to know like, hey, in this other project, they solve it this way, you know, and, and I suggest it. And suddenly in a team of 20, people, um, if you implement some kind of automation, which saves, you know, maybe five seconds per task, but this task is executed 10 times um, per week, and then you multiply it, you save hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for the company. Mm -hmm. So do not underestimate both how viable these kind of contributions are, but also how much your you know, your coworkers will appreciate it if they no longer have to worry about it. It is not only the time they spend on it, but also the possibility to make human errors, like, you know, copy and paste errors, and also the necessity of switching contexts. Mm -hmm. If something just happens, as long as they follow some conventions, for example, then they just don't need to worry about it. And they code something and they move on to the next thing. Yeah. So it's not only the five seconds, maybe that it saves them to open a website and click a button and another button, but it's also about staying in the flow. And we all know how important that is for developers. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It, it's such a finite resource and it really is our superpower as developers is, is if we're in the flow, we are so productive like i wouldn't be surprised if it was several orders of magnitude you know more productive but it's very difficult to i I don't know i think for a lot of people won't speak for you but uh, i think it can be very difficult to get into that flow state and it can be very easy to get knocked out of it and so when you take those two together it becomes incredibly valuable to build things that preserve the flow state. And that's not really something that I've thought about before in terms of automation. I think I tend to think about it more the way that you just said with the saving time and time, you know, has a money value to it. And the more time you save, the the more valuable the automation is. But I think, I think you're right. Even beyond time, uh, preserving that flow state and that productivity could probably be worth even more. Yeah. And I've heard of teams that actually start tracking how much you know time bots save them in their team because that way you can put a number on it and then you can also sell it better to your mm-hmm. managers and then you can say look we do you know 30 releases of our libraries every week how much time would it save if we would automate or semi automate this process and then you talk to your coworkers and you say like how much time do you spend on this and how much time do you right. spend 
on a doing, but also on the waiting, you know, when you put it all together and then maybe it's 90 seconds or something, and then you multiply it and you come up with a pretty high number pretty quick. And then it's easy and it's an easy sell if you say, well, I can automate this with two hours of work. I've already done this in this other open source project, for example. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. If you're, if you're listening and you're on a team, that type of that type of behavior, that communication, that reaching out to your teammates and other teams and asking them about their experience and what they're doing and how much time they're spending different things, you know, on different things, um, that type of behavior combined with the initiative to really solve a problem and make people more efficient, uh, that'll definitely get you noticed. Uh, I, I definitely recommend listening, listening to that, to that advice. Have you have you been have you been on a team where it sounds like you're really good at this, but have you been on a team where where somebody's done that and you you took notice? Yeah. So with Hoodie, um, when we created Hoodie back in the days, we decided pretty no, actually we started out with a big monolith repository and it became very complex. And eventually we, we sit together and said, look, we really need to lower the barrier for new contributors because nobody is able you know, to contribute to Hoodie because it is such a massive amount of code and it's all over the place. It's front-end and back-end and database. So what we decided the right thing to do was let's split up this monolith into tiny little modules. Mm -hmm. And we did, and it was fantastic in, in terms of achieving our goal because now we had maybe 10 to 15 different repositories and they were all small libraries. They were all documented. They were all atomic and isolated and well-tested. So if someone found a bug, you know, somewhere in the front-end code with their local store, for example, we could just point them to the right repository. They could set it up in seconds because it's such a small amount of code. Just run the tests, create a test that reproduces their problem and then fix it within the scope of the problem that they are having. So that worked great. But the problem that it caused was, well, now we have 20 repositories and how do we <laughs> how do we maintain them? Like if I do a new release in this repository, then I have to update these other repositories. And out of that, two projects came out. One is uh, semantic release, which basically automates the release process. Um, and the other one was Greenkeeper, which was the first service out there which automated dependencies updates. So they both originated from Hoodie. Oh, that's 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 right. I'm now remembering. Yeah, I absolutely love semantic release. Um, Greenkeeper kind of annoyed me. It would always just tell me to 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 do work, but I understand why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, like the automation can create noise as well, but, you know, eventually uh, we reduce the noise a lot by by changes. No, I think, um, I, think but it, you, yeah. I totally understand. Yeah. No, I think it's uh, uh, that, I think that was an incredibly important project, which lives on. You know, I think it was heavily inspirational to a lot of other projects. I mean, I think I mean, I, I would say Dependabot is is like a direct, you know, um, uh, descendant from that, right? Yeah, Dependabot. Um, now I use Renovate in a lot of uh, my mm, projects mm. because Dependabot is good kind of for end user applications. Renovate is better for libraries. 
Um, and got it makes sense. Um, so I depend more on on renovate, but semantic release is still going strong. I have hundreds of libraries on GitHub that are open source, and I would never ever be able to maintain them all and keep them up to date without both release and dependency update automation. So mm -hmm. these were kind of you know contributions by our teammates, actually interns at the time. Oh, awesome! Our, like, company neighborhood. So they were early career um, and you know they moved on having great careers now. Like that was like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but they kind of found this problem and, and this friction and then they thought like, hey, couldn't we automate it? And, and they did. And it was a huge success for Hoodie. And then it grew out of the scope of Hoodie and just became you know, their own thing. That's so cool. Greenkeeper yeah. even became like a you know like a business. So that's like right. Even created a revenue uh, later for the company as well. Man, I love stories like that. That is that is so cool that you can have something that that really produces value so much so that it winds up producing other things that produce value, like having having offspring. Do you remember the the conversations about? Uh, semantic release and Greek Keeper early on? Do you remember if there was any, I don't know, pushback or problems with the design in the first ones and, and how that uh, got resolved? Or was it always, as soon as, it was, as soon as the idea was proposed, was it like, oh yeah, obviously, yeah, go ahead, do it. Like, sounds perfect. Yeah, the letter. <laughs> sounds perfect. Let's go do it. I want to <laughs> say maybe something that also is relevant to your audience. Um, when you write this kind of tooling, it is usually not code that is run in production, right? It is, it is code that automates some processes, which means your code can be messy and you know it's not as critical if if it's not super secure, because oftentimes it's just code that's running on your own machine or in your private GitHub repository. So it is a fantastic way to just kind of mess around and don't worry too much. And you know, you're kind of you don't need to follow all the required practices that maybe your company requires mm -hmm. for code that you actually ship to your customers or, or you know um, or to your users. Yeah. Because it is just tools. So it is a fantastic way right. to kind of jump in and just do something. And if it works, you know, you can invite um, your other coworkers who are using this tool and say, like, hey, can you help me, like, go through this code and maybe find some more bugs or, or just help me refactor it? Um, and that is a fantastic way to learn and also for your coworkers then to give back to you and, and help, you know, mentor you a little bit and, and, and share their tricks as well to make the code more efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it also get them a little bit more more invested and and get them to take a little bit more ownership of it too, which will then uh, get them to to promote it more and and use it more within the organization, which which also really really helps you. I love what you just said about about avoiding um, doing things in like that that production that hot code things in the critical path that are going to affect your customers. Um, I think if you are early in your career and you want to like, you know, you're an intern at Google and you're like, oh, I've got this great tweak for the the search algorithm or 
you know, I got this great tweak that's going to change how we display ads, you know, pretend you're Google, they're going to be like, Haha, absolutely not. Um, but uh, and I say this as not knowing anything about the internals of Google, just, you know, larger companies. But it's very different than if you were to, to do this, you know, the side project that you can just run. That's more of like a, you know, analyzes the code or it like, you know, moves the images around or like optimizes them or just does something like you said, that's not run in production, but is run outside of production that just helps uh, a developer before or after or like during the code review process. That's not something that's going to freak managers out. You know, whoever the product owner is, isn't going to be nearly as worried about that because they're not going to imagine some, you know, security issue or some edge case that's all of a sudden going to, you know, affect the the revenue of the company, uh, which which is a very scary thought for them. And so, uh, yeah, your recommendation of creating tools that work outside of that. So like you said, you know, maybe how the, the releases are done or something that helps you manage the dependencies, um, both of those both of those suggestions uh, work really well. Is there another area too that you think is like a good place to to maybe to start, like testing or documentation? Yeah, like what else? What else would be like fertile areas for for improvement that aren't as scary? Oh yeah, documentation. Like you know, I want to focus a little bit on open source and as an especially actually as an as someone new to to tech and to development and coding. You have a unique perspective that I lost a long time ago, and many, you know, more, more late career like people who've been around for decades just lost. Um, and curse of knowledge. Yeah, just when you start out using a library that I've been working on, and something is confusing you, then don't think it's you. It's oftentimes that we just have assumptions because we just do things the same way for years now, and we just assume everyone does it. And if you file an issue and say, look, I've, I've read through this documentation, but this is confusing me. What do you mean by this part? It is fantastic input because I would never be able to come up with it myself. Right. So you know, if there's a library you're interested in using and just going going through the documentation and, and like the, you know, quick start guides, for example, and taking notes and then submitting an issue and saying like, hey, I went through it and these are like the parts that weren't entirely clear to me. And this is where I found my answers um, is a great contribution and will be greatly appreciated. And oftentimes maintainers will then invite you to um, submit a pull request to actually update the documentation. And if this whole process is new to you, then this is a fantastic way to get familiar with GitHub outside of work, um, where people will be happy to walk you through and explain you know, how, how you can do it. And it's a great starting point to just become a contributor and you know, just become more proficient with, with GitHub features and, and the pull request flows and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that. I love that too. Yeah, the the you know, I mentioned that the curse of knowledge is as you, you know, gain experience and you've been doing things for such a long time, a lot of the problems that that would affect people other than you become invisible. It's sort of impossible to imagine what it would be like to not know the things that you 
you already know. That's just a very difficult thing for for human brains to to do. And so with fresh eyes coming to a project, you know, not not having the same experience as the maintainers, the creators, the authors, uh, you actually do have an asset, a valuable asset that they don't have. And I understand it might be intimidating or a little bit daunting to to approach a project and say, here's everything that's wrong with it. You know, I tried to run with it and like, this is what's wrong. And and we're not suggesting taking that attitude because you would be correct in, in assuming that that may not go well if the, the maintainers are are not uh, uh, sophisticated enough to to not be reactive. But um, instead, just, you know, frame it in terms of your experience that you you there is nothing wrong with describing how it made you feel and the problems that you had and uh, submitting that as just additional information for them to have uh, without any making any value judgments about the, the library um, or the project itself, you know, all you need to do is saying like, hey, here's, you know, here's my experience. Here's like some user testing or, or you know, user research in case it's helpful to you. Here's what happened. You know, I first went to the page and I looked at the readme. And in the very beginning, there was a link to, you know, to, you know, download it. And so then I downloaded it. And then as soon as like I opened it, I tried to do, you know, what I thought would be the thing. And I just got this error message and uh, it said this. And I didn't really know what that meant. So then I tried this thing and, you know, eventually I just couldn't get it to work and I was about to give up, but figured you should know, um, you know, something like that where they can see like, oh, OK, so this is what someone like you will think is thinking when they come to the page. This is the the steps that they're going to try and do. And so they're going to extrapolate that they're losing a lot of people in that same, you know, those same pathways. And they'll either fix it or they'll kind of ask you follow up questions to be like, OK, so if we change it to this, would that help or whatever? And there's a million different ways like this is just sort of some random example that I, that I came up with. But the point is you providing your experience and your thinking and how you approach a, pro a project and the problems that you run into is valuable. And you don't need to make a value judgment. You can just say, like, here's what happened to me. Hopefully this is this is helpful. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that is super good. Um, what, yeah, like what else have you, like, is there, are there other things that open source has taught you or you feel like is very core of, of like how you approach development or how you think of yourself as a software engineer? Yeah, I would say an important aspect is, um, that coding writing the code itself is this is the fun part you know like this is kind of what we all know how to do or want to learn but it's only a very little aspect of what you need to do every day and a much bigger part is uh, communication mm -hmm. like both verbally but also written documentation for example or emails chats issues and I learned a lot, especially as a non-native English speaker, to like move around in this nearly all English oh, field, yeah. which is which is technology. I just learned a lot, like how to articulate things, how to ask questions, how to ask for help, how to not be entitled, you know, especially in open source, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and how to communicate with others in a way that is 
most beneficial to both um, whomever I'm talking to and myself. And like communication skills, um, writing skills is so important besides besides the, the coding aspect itself. Because like if you want to grow in your career, you know, you will get out of your little sandbox and hand-holding very, very quickly. <laughs> and the more you kind of grow, the more it is important that you communicate well and that you understand that you, when you're talking to someone who is non-technical, who explains to you, this is our business problem, it will be your responsibility to translate it into a technical system and then communicate back this is what we need to build and this is why and this is how it will work and this is why we should invest into that aspect more even though it is not exactly what you want and to learn how to push back um, in a way that is understandable not only by other coders but also by people whose you know core competency is um, competence is not coding itself and with open source, what is great is that you just communicate with so many people. When you are working, you have a team of maybe 10, 15 people that you communicate most with on your you know, day-to-day basis. But when you are involved with open source, you talk with all kinds of people, with all kinds of background from all around the world. And it's a fantastic way to improve your skills there. And, and it's a lot of fun as well, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of one of those learn learn by doing things. So you mentioned, um, you know, communication being really important to to growth. Uh, and I guess this is a question that that I probably don't ask as much as I should, considering it's the the title of the show. But what do you consider the difference between junior and senior? Or you know, a lot of people don't necessarily like those labels. But when you think about uh, a developer who hasn't had much growth versus a developer who has have had has had a lot of growth. Uh, just however you 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 want to think about that, what would you say is that that difference? Um, like, what's that? What's that delta? Like, what? How, what's the? Yeah, how would you compare how they operate? So the definition that I like a lot is that a job of senior developers is to make more senior developers. Mm, mm-hmm. And as a senior developer, it is your job to mentor other developers. If you don't do that, then to me, it's like an empty job title to earn more money. But if you, you, know, <laughs> you think you, you are a senior developer and you work in a company you know, with, with, with more developers than yourself and you don't mentor anyone, you don't take the time um, to you know, help others grow in their career, then you don't do a good service to the company. On the other side, to flip it around, as a junior developer, I would say you are entitled to mentoring. Like you are paid less, but you are entitled to get coaching and mentoring, and you should not hold back asking for that support because if you are not receiving it, then maybe it's not the best place for you to be. And I know it's it's easy to say, but that's to me the whole point. Eventually, um, you should have enough knowledge that you can then turn around and pass it on to others. And it doesn't even need to take a lot of time. You know, when you've been hired last year, you know, maybe out of university or boot camp or like career change, you still have this 
great perspective remembering what it was to come in and, and what have been the aspects that overwhelmed you. And even if you don't have the experience of a decade as an, as an engineer, you have the experience of how did I get from, oh my God, this is really, um, you know, overwhelming and um, you know makes me makes me anxious to okay I, i'm finding my way around here at least i know i know what i do not know i know the questions i can ask i know the people whom i can ask and so on so you can start mentoring pretty soon it doesn't need to take years and that is a very important skill to mentor other people because when you then you know, do a job change and you look for a new gig, you can say, look, I've mentored these people. I helped these other developers to grow from this point and help them build out these things. That is something that I would always mention and highlight because as I say, I think this is the job of a senior developer to be able to mentor and grow other um, coworkers. Yeah, I mean, especially if you think about it from the business point of view or, or managers or a director or CTO from their perspective, uh, that's incredibly valuable to the company and to the team or the the organization. You know, if you if you have the ability to come in and make another developer five or ten percent better, and you do that to you know five ten developers, you know that increase in productivity. And I guess this also goes to what you're talking about with those automations. You know, that's a huge huge value to the company. You know, just like taking taking round taking round numbers, you know, if uh, you know, if a developer is making, you know, one hundred thousand dollars, right, a 10 percent, 10 percent increase to their productivity. That's, you know, ten thousand dollars a year. You know, you do that to 10 developers like that's one hundred thousand dollars in additional value that you've you've created for the for the company. Um, now, of course, those are just fictional, you know, even even round numbers. But the point is, you can you can estimate those and and see why that mentorship, why those increases in productivity are so valuable and so sought after for you know companies that are that are hiring. Yeah, but I would definitely ask you know when you when you when you like do any kind of interviews and and you wanna you know you're applying for a junior position. That's a question I would definitely ask. Like, what is your mentorship program? Like, how do you make sure you know that I can become a senior developer eventually and provide the value of a senior developer? Like, how can you as a company, as a team, help me to get from where I am when I'm starting out to something where I can be of really big value to your company as well? And then, of course, the benefit that you're getting out of it yourself is that you just grow personally and you just learn so much more if other people show it to you and explain it to you and pair with you and mentor you instead of just kind of using junior positions uh, as an excuse to pay you less and then just leave you on your own. Unfortunately, that is something that I've seen happening as well. But if you ask this question, you will get a feel, is this a company that just wants to pay me a little money? Or is this a company that shares the values about junior and senior developers and how they should um, interact for the benefit of mm -hmm. everyone? Have you seen like I'm kind of curious what what would be in a, like a good answer? Like, have you seen companies that have particular programs or philosophies or cultures around that? Like, what does it what does it look like for a company be to be 
doing that correctly. Like, have you seen examples of that? Yeah. For one, bigger companies are your friends. Uh, bigger companies usually have established processes for, you know, like interns or, or junior developers. Why like smaller startups, they just don't have, like how, how could they really, right? But it's still worth asking the question if, if they're explicitly looking out or have an opening for a junior position, then it's worth wondering, well, why? Like what's, why do they have this junior position? And to talk about it, I think is important. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of companies, for example, that either really require you to pair every day or like every week or strongly encourage it. And if you're a team where a lot of pairing is happening, that is fantastic. I know that's kind of, you know, not a nice feeling for many to think, well, someone is constantly looking over my shoulder, <laughs> but it's outside of your comfort zone, but that's where you grow, right? And it's a fantastic way yeah. to transfer Absolutely. knowledge. And it's not only the knowledge about your work, but about all the tooling that you're using at work and that you will be using at all future jobs as well, like the terminal and your code editor. When you look over the shoulder um, of like a more experienced developer, you will have so many points where you will be like, what, wow, well, how did you do that? Like, what did you just do? <laughs> and then they will be happy to explain it to you, um, even if it costs them some more time, but oh, yeah. it Absolutely. might save you minutes and hours and days in future. So it is in the interest of the company as well that you learn the same tricks. And these are tricks that you will always be able to keep and take with you to your next job. And that hopefully, you will be able to teach others in, in future. Pairing is a great I'm way. I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up. Like in my head, I've got like this one metaphor, of, right? You know, like you can light a match and you can just like touch this other match to it. And then it's like going to catch fire. You know, it's like you can copy those those skills. They, they transfer really, really fast when you're that close together and you're watching over someone's shoulder. And there are so, I can't even begin to describe like how many little tricks and productivity hacks and tools and 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 things like that 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 more advanced senior developers have that they just never really think about like if you were to ask them directly like oh what do you do to be more productive there are going to be so many things that they've picked up over the years that they're just not even going to they're going to wind up being invisible to them. They're not going to bring it up. But if you're watching over their shoulder, you're going to be like, wait, what is that? What's that? Wait, what is that? What are you doing? And you're just going to pick up all of these things that wind up being really useful. Some of them, you know, won't won't, you know, be a good fit for you, but a ton of them will. And it's very hard to get that just by, you know, having lunch with them or something like that. So I am so glad you brought up pairing because I think that is probably the fastest way of of you know, leveling up is is working with someone. Uh, Gregor, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, I'm online. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm GR2M and nearly all the platforms on Twitter and GitHub. And I also recently started experimenting with videos and like live coding shows, kind of because of the same reason we just talked about pairing because I can make these videos and people look over my shoulders and they find things that I'm not even aware of are useful. And uh, I do live coding on Twitch. I'm Gregor Codes on Twitch. And every Monday at noon and every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 
I do live coding shows, and I invite everyone to ask me questions about all things OctoKit, GitHub APIs, like how do I X, Y, Z, and then maybe I will make a show about it and invite you to it, and we can pay on it. Uh, I love that so much. And yeah, I did. I, that one that I did with you was so, was so fun. All right. Uh, thank you for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, David. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Remote work is here to stay. I can show you how to find and hire a full team of remote senior engineers for a quarter of what you'd pay at local rates. To learn more, check out superstruct.tech slash four phase. That's F-O-U-R dash P-H-A-S-E.